prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. So, They send the investigation team to figure out who this John guy is. They arrive and they don't waste any time. They cut through the crowds. They say, excuse me, we're coming through. They think they're a big deal. They come through the crowd. They pass all the people. They go right up to the front to this famous guy named John and they ask, who are you? The question's not, what's your name? Where are you from? Tell us a little about yourself. Tell you what's going on. Now the question is, are you the guy, that's what they want to know. Who are you? Not just some nice biographical information. They want to know, what are you up to? You going to make trouble for us? What's your plan? Are you the Messiah? That's what they're after. They want to know, is this guy going to be a political problem for them as they manage this tense relationship with Rome? So they show up and go to John, go to John and ask, Who are you? And John lets them know quite quickly, right out of the gate, makes it clear. He says, I am not the Christ. Now, Christ is the Greek way of saying Messiah. He says, I'm not the guy. He dispels their worries. I'm not the guy. I'm not the promised deliverer. It's not who I am. But this investigation team, they can't just leave empty-handed. Like, they can't go, oh, he's not the guy. Okay, let's go back and lead this dude amassing this army of thousands of people preaching about the kingdom of God coming because it looks fishy. So they can't just leave. They got to know who he is. They got to be able to tell the leaders something. And so they ask, well, are you Elijah? Now, hang on a minute. Elijah lived literally 900 years before this moment. Why in the world would they ask, is this Elijah? Well, there was a prophecy that seemed to say that Elijah would return. And this guy named John, he looked a little strange. He wore camel skins and a big old leather belt. I think like one of them wrestling belts, you know what I'm talking about? That's what I picture it to look like anyway. Big old wrestling leather belt. And he eats locusts, yuck, and wild honey. Okay. He eats locusts while he's got long hair. His hair has never been cut. 
Dude looks rough, okay? Like the undertaker or something. He looks rough. And so, and so they're like, kind of looks like Elijah, because it's kind of what Elijah looked like. And so they're like, are you Elijah? Right? And I, th- I think from their perspective, it's almost like they want to kind of sound smart because like they, they know their Bible. And so, hey, are you Elijah? And the other thing about Elijah is that Elijah went around preaching that the kingdom of God was coming and he was calling God's people to repent and turn from their sin and for Israel's leaders to repent and turn from their sin. And so it kind of looks like he's Elijah and maybe Elijah's back. And John says, no, that's not me. So they, they try another tactic. So the investigation team says, well, are you the prophet? Now notice they don't say, are you a prophet? Because John the Baptist was a prophet. He would have said, yes, I am a prophet. But are you the prophet? Referring to a prophecy in Deuteronomy 18.5 from Moses that said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers and you must listen to him. So they're like, maybe this guy is the second Moses and he's come to tell us some things. John simply says, no, that's not me either. It's not me either. So now they're a little frustrated. And this investigation team, they need answers. They need answers. All their best guesses have proved wrong. And so finally in verse 22, they say, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. So what do you say about yourself? They're like, listen, man, we're tired of guessing. You just need to own up and tell us who you are, what you're doing. Are you amassing an army? Are you going to take on Rome? What's going on? Who are you? Let's just, let's just have it. First, I think we got to stop and examine the religious people, this investigation team, and how arrogant they are. Just as you read this, you just see how full of themselves and how arrogant they are. First, they march right up to the guy demanding answers like there's somebody who needs, who, who gets answered to. Like they're big shots. It's like they're saying, look, buddy. We run the religious stuff around here. We keep the political climate under control around here. And if you want our blessing to do what you're doing, you're going to need to let us in on what's going on so we can give you our stamp of approval or not. And when they can't decipher who he is, they grow frustrated. But John doesn't care to be on their team. John doesn't care to have their blessing or have their permission. If I was John... I would have done, I would have said, I'll tell you who I am. I'm the last of the Old Testament prophets. And my birth was declared to my father by an angel Gabriel. And the Holy Spirit empowered me for this mission when I was even in the womb. The Son of God called me the greatest man who ever walked the face of the earth. And I am here to announce to the world the arrival of the Son of God himself. That's who I am. Who are you, buddy? But John doesn't do that because he's a better man than I am. He's humble. You see, John could have amassed an army. He could have started a movement. He could have led a revolution. He had enough followers. He could have garnered power. He could have had influence. He could have had political might. He could have been somebody. But that is not why John was there. John was not the guy. He did not want to make much of himself. So finally, he tells the investigation team exactly who he is. He says, he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, 
says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Notice he says that he is the voice, not the word. Remember from a few weeks ago? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He's saying, I'm not the word, I'm simply a voice. The word is the one who created the world. The word was with God and was God. I'm not that. I'm just a voice. He is the one declaring that the word is coming. But it's interesting that John would quote this passage from Isaiah. Because this Isaiah passage in the Old Testament is refers to a time in Israel's history when they had been defeated by Babylon. And they were taken into captivity by Babylon. They were taken away from their home as slaves and they were now exiled, separated from their homeland, separated from the temple as slaves in Babylon to serve foreign people, foreign rulers, and foreign gods. And as this passage in Isaiah, if we were to go back in Isaiah 40, uh, unfolds, it is telling us about the deliverance from that slavery and that they will return home, and that the road home might look crooked, and there's like a lot of potholes in the road, and there's a lot of hills and valleys, and a lot of mountains to go around. Like, y'all ever drove through West Virginia? Y'all know what I'm talking about? We just... I'm still turning left. Let's go. Okay, okay. It's like, it's like, that's the road, but God is, pro- Isaiah is prophesying and saying, God is going to make the road straight, and that he will bring you home. And that he will make the path easy because he will be the one to deliver you. That is what Isaiah was talking about when they were in exile in Babylon. But now John is saying, I am the voice crying out in the wilderness. And God is making the road straight. He's come to deliver his people. The road will be straight again. A promise of delivery from slavery would be swift. So why is John quoting this passage? Why is John saying that this Isaiah passage is now being fulfilled in him, that he is, he is going to be the one to do this? Because wasn't that already, did not already happen? Didn't God already rescue the people from Babylon and they already came out of slavery and they were already home? Why is John quoting this verse? Because God's people are no longer slaves in Babylon, no longer exiles, They were not bound in iron chains. They were not slaves. But yet, they were still bound and were still slaves. And sin was their master. See, the religious leaders believed that they understood what their biggest problem was. They thought those pesky Romans who defied their God were the problem. And if we would just get the Romans out of the way, everything could go back to normal, everything would be fine. But they did not know they were still in exile. So when they hear that God was coming to redeem them from an exile, to them, that would have seemed like great news. Yes, get these Romans out of here. But they misunderstood. These religious leaders, this investigation team, they misunderstood what type of slavery they were really in. They thought their biggest problem was a political problem, but their real problem that ran much deeper and closer to home than that 
was not a political problem, was not a Roman problem. You see, Israel had been enslaved in Egypt. They had been enslaved in Babylon. They were slaves in Assyria. Both times they were exiled and separated from God. They were cut off from God. But both of these events were meant to teach them something that they missed. Every time that they were in exile and enslaved, it was meant to show them a deeper truth that they missed. That their real shackles, their real bonds, their real slavery and exile was not to a foreign power, but was to sin. That sin was their master and sin enslaved them. See, their wicked hearts throughout their history continued to look to other gods to satisfy them. Their wicked hearts who looked to the world and to other nations and said, if we could be like them, and they lusted after power and influence and military might. Throughout the course of history, they lusted on other women. They slept with prostitutes. They did not promote justice. They did not care for the poor. And again and again, their wickedness separated them from God. You see, their exile and their slavery was real. And their their, their physical slavery was an analogy to show them the true problem. They were exiled from God and cut off. Now, Yes, they were still quite religious. They were, they were very religious. They still went to temple and they heard the word of God taught and preached. They still observed the rituals. They went through all of the motions of all the religious things that you're supposed to do. You know, they, they stood up, sat down, you know, all the things. They did it all. But their hearts were not They said the right words, they often did the right actions, but they were cut off from God because they did not deal with the real problem. And the only way to remedy this problem was through the continual sacrifice of an animal. If they were going to hold back the justice of God that was aimed at them, the righteous judgment of God that was rightly aimed at them, if they were going to stay that justice, if they were going to hold it off, They had to sacrifice and slaughter a lamb because of their wickedness. And so every day, every single day, 365 days a year, there were sacrifices in the temple. Every day, blood was spilled. And then there were holidays where they got to kill more animals and spill more blood. Doesn't that sound fun? There were more lambs to be slain and more blood to be spilled so that they could stop the righteous judgment and justice of God that was aimed to destroy them. With every lamb that was slain, they stayed the, rest, the righteous judgment and wrath of God a little longer. You see, John knew this truth. John knew this truth because his dad was a priest. He would have seen his dad go to the temple and work, and he would have seen his dad come home every single day with his clothes stained with blood. John knew the continual again and again for thousands of years, the sacrifices and the blood that has been spilled so that God would not wipe Israel off the face of the world. The constant killing, the constant blood was a constant reminder to them that without it, they were doomed. Without the lamb's blood, it would be their blood. 
Thousands of years this has been happening and there has been no end in sight. There was no end to the amount of lambs that would be slain. It seemed that there would never be enough blood, never enough killing to appease the wrath of God. And so when John tells these religious guys, I'm the voice of the one cried out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He is saying deliverance from our true slavery, our true exile is coming. Prepare yourself, not because I'm going to do anything, but because the one who can is coming. Get ready. And he's going to deliver us from our real problem, from our true slavery. And so the next day, John was doing what he always did. He was preaching about the kingdom of God coming. He was baptizing people in the Jordan River, and everything was the same, but this day was a little different. See, John... He didn't know, he didn't have the blueprint. He didn't know the plan of what God was going to do. All he knew was he had to get everybody ready because it was coming. But he didn't know what God was going to do. He had no clue until that moment. Until that moment when he was standing in the Jordan River talking about the kingdom, it suddenly clicked. As he looks up on top of the hill, he sees a man standing there, and all of a sudden, what God was going to do, he knew it. How God was going to bring us out of exile, bring us out of slavery, break the bonds and the chains on our hearts. How he was going to do it finally dawned on him, finally clicked. That God was not going to send an army. There was not going to be an insurrection. It was not going to be through political power. There was not going to be through doing religious stuff. No, none of that, because that would be the things of the world. That's not what God was going to do. No, in that moment, when John looked up, and he finally, it finally made sense. And you got to think that John's standing there, and he goes, of course, of course. For thousands of years, we've slaughtered lamb after lamb after lamb. We have ran, the streets have ran red with blood, but it never seemed to do anything. There was never enough blood. It did not satisfy the wrath of God. But now he looks up and he sees a man, and to all the people standing around, to the thousands of people he's been preaching to who think John is awesome, John points up and looks at this man and he says, Behold, the lamb takes away the sin of the world. The lamb has come. For thousands of years, we've slaughtered them, and it's done nothing. All of history was building at this moment. It's like it finally dawned on him, oh, God was teaching us. These lambs we sacrificed, this blood that ran red in the streets, didn't do anything, but it was pointing to the one who could, to the truly spotless lamb who would come and be slain. And when this man's blood was spilled, it would be the last time because this blood would have the power not to simply hold back the justice of God, but to appease it and satisfy it forever. No more would the people of God be slaves. No more would the people of God be exiled and cut off from him. God had come to bring his people home. You see, the religious people were looking for the lion of the tribe of Judah to come and bring fire and fury and slay the enemies of God. They wanted a lion, but what they needed was a lamb. See, there's a saying about the hero Batman. For you Batman fans out there. It says that Batman is not the hero Gotham wanted, but he was the hero they needed. 
Jesus is not the savior the religious people wanted, but he is precisely what they needed. They wanted a lion, but they got a lamb. And what they needed is what we need. So often we're like the religious people. We're like the investigation team. We're arrogant and prideful. We think we understand the world. We think we understand ourselves. We think we know what we need. We think we stand in the place of power, able to see our problems and able to fix them. But see, many of us miss out on the wonder of Jesus in our lives because we like to be comfortable and we like doing church the way we've, we've done it. We like things a certain way. We like the music we like. We like the chair set up the way we like. We like to wear the clothes we like. We like doing things our way. And if we can do things our way, we feel comfortable and safe. And because we like these things, we miss out on the blessings of Jesus in our life because we're caught up in religious games. But let's be more like John the Baptist, humble not thinking it's about us or what we like or anything, but making much of, not making much of ourselves, but making much of the lamb who comes to take away the sin of the world. Let's not put Jesus in a box, but let's just follow where he leads. This section of scripture opens up with this phrase. This is the testimony of John. This is John's biography. It's his legacy. If we were going to write on his tombstone what John's life was about, we would write this, not me, but him. Not me, but him. Don't look at me, look at him. That was the testimony of his life. The question you must ask yourself this morning is what will your testimony be? At the end of your life, when we read, this is the testimony of, insert your name, How would the story go? Who would the main character of your story be? Fellowship, my hope for you is that your life's story would be like John's. That the testimony of your life would be that everything in your life points to the lamb. That your marriages, when people see them, they would see Jesus. The way you raise your children, the way you discipline your children, that it would, other people would see Jesus in that. The way you're generous would point to Jesus. The way you work would point to Jesus. The way you treat others would point to Jesus. That everything in your life would point to him. Have you ever noticed, the the sermon graphic has this, these old pictures of Jesus, these old paintings, classical paintings of Jesus, and you'll see him, he's kind of doing this number, he's kind of holding up two. I never knew what that meant. I always thought he was like using the force. But he holds up a two because he's the second person of the Trinity. And if you've ever seen a painting of John the Baptist, he always does this. He points away from himself. Not me, but him. Not me, but him. His legacy has stood the test of time. My question is, will yours? Revelation 5 says this. They wanted a lion, they got a lamb, Revelation says, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. But how did he conquer? Verse six, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. 
Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah who has won the battle because he came as a lamb who was slain. The religious people wanted a lion to come devour their enemies, but the lion came as a lamb because that's what we needed. We didn't need someone to conquer. We needed someone who loved us enough not to fight, but to die. And because of that, he is worthy now and he is worthy forever. So our lives should be marked by pointing, not me but him. I am nothing, he is everything. I must decrease, he must increase. For eternity, the anthem of our life should be worthy is the lamb who was slain. We will sing that forever. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. But let's not wait. Let that anthem begin now in your life. You see, unlike all of these false messiahs and other religious leaders, unlike Jim Jones and the People's Temple and drinking the Kool-Aid, unlike them, Jesus does not come and ask you to drink the Kool-Aid. He comes and drinks it himself so that you might live. The Bible says he took the cup of wrath, he drank it in full, so that now the cup of wrath is empty and God is no longer angry at all those who find themselves in Christ because justice has been satisfied, the lamb has been slain, the blood has been spilled, justice has been paid for. And so now we can live for him. That is the testimony of John. What is your testimony? May it be that in a world full of false promises and false saviors and false hopes, we stand humbly pointing to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If that's not your story this morning, like if, if your story is you've been playing the religious thing and just coming to church and just doing the, the stuff you think you're supposed to do, but you've never known the Lamb who was slain for you, you can meet him this morning and know the wonder of what it means to follow him. If that's you, don't wait. Come, let us help you. Let's pray. Not me, but him. God, may that be the anthem of every believer in this is room's life. That in every area of their life, it would say, not me, a marriage isn't great because I'm great, but because he's great. When you look at my children, and the way I raised them, it's not because I'm great, it's because he's great. The way we treat people, the way we forgive people, the way we give, would it point to him? Everything we do. God, this morning, there are people in this room who, who are lost. It is, an, an, it is a fact and in a room this size that not everyone in this room is going to heaven when they die because not everyone in this room knows the lamb who was slain to take away the sin of the world. But God, if you call them right now, if you are pulling on their heart right now, if they know, if they feel it, man, that is me, and they are scared to death, Lord, let them come because we will stand and cheer and clap and embrace and love them. They would come, bow their knees and say, Jesus, you are Lord, the lamb who was slain. We can help you do that this morning. And if you're here this morning and that is you and you do believe, I want you to just think about your life and ask the question, is your life an arrow pointing to the one who would come to set us free? And if it's not, say, God, help me. Show me how to make my life point in those ways.
There are men's in the corners over here that would love to pray with you. I'll be up here at the front. I would love to just pray with you. If you want to just come here and get on your knees and pray, man, that's sometimes what I need to do. If you just want to stand and sing this response song about Revelation, the text we just read, about that Jesus is worthy, do that. Whatever you do, don't do nothing. Jesus, give us the courage and strength to respond. We love you. In Christ's name we pray, all those people said. Stand and sing.